was made by, by court. How do you think you're going to win in court? And he said, the judge eats tacos. We all eat tacos. Terio or maybe a new virus will come and wreak havoc to the growth again. Getting somewhere else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. This episode, we'll see a restaurant that only serves native corn from Mexico and talk to scientists about genetically modified foods. We'll take a look at the impact of globalization on a citrus grove in Florida and ask ourselves the hard questions. Like if we really need so much orange juice. What should a tortilla really taste like? (laughs) Come along as we find out. (laughs) Come along as we find out. We're here at May 64. I feel like we should get something reformed. Yeah. My thought, the veggie tostada standing out to me. Okay. I would also do the tuna tostada. Or the tamal. Oh, yeah. And then I honestly might get the tacos because I love asada and I want to try theirs. We're here at a new fine dining restaurant near Logan Circle dipping homemade corn chips into salsa. On the wall right in front of me, painted gold and exhibited inside glass cubes, the goddess of all grain in Mexico, corn. This is Chef Alain Mendez Florian's namesake ingredient. The 64 in the restaurant's title, alluding to the 64 heritage breeds of corn, or maize, in Mexico. You got a corn tamale? Oh, thank you. My pleasure. It's very good. Yeah, actually, I know it's first time. I was going to say, did you try it before? No. It's amazing. It is. It is amazing. I hope you enjoy it, okay? Thank you so much. I picked the corn tamale because I wanted something with corn in it because that's the, this place is, yeah, maize 64. 64 varieties of corn. Every kind of corn in the world, from the kind with tiny purple kernels to those that grow larger and blue and red and the more popular yellow and white, come from these grandfather breeds. But Chef Mendez Florian explains that in Mexico, corn is more than heritage, more than food. So corn is in our our veins, you know? I think it's like one of the most important things that we have to care in Mexico. The chef speaks of the Popovu, the sacred Mayan text, which describes how the gods form the first humans from a dough made out of a good corn masa from yellow and white maize, after their attempts to use clay and wood had failed. The maize god was decapitated once harvesting began and then reborn at the start of each new growing season. 
The god was not just associated with maize itself then, but also with the life cycle, the cycle of seasons, and the associated growth of crops. The women and men of corn saw as much as the gods, reads the Popovu. Their glance ranged over the whole world. May 64 opened last October, boasting, as its website reads, a modern homage to authentic Mexican cuisine, featuring local ingredients that result in exquisite and vibrant creations. The maize comes from Mexico, hand ground in the restaurant. When we visited, I ordered the octopus. Abby had tacos. Wow, so describe the dish that you're seeing. Um, I got a double tentacle. <laughs> it's definitely like, like barbecue. Ooh. Lovely. Look, look at your little dollop. I know, I love that. <laughs> yeah, so I've got a double tentacle grilled octopus. Very charred, very like barbecue, barbecue pineapple, nice and a green salsa, and some bok choy. <laughs> I have carne asada tacos. It looks about what you'd expect, except the green sauce. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Except the green sauce. So a waiter brought me a woven basket, and when I peeked inside, I found a linen towel. Embarrassingly, I was confused by it. Not sure why I needed a towel for octopus eating, unless they had some clue of how messy of an eater I was. And so, of course, I opened the towel. Better. This is much better than a test of a towel. Okay, so rewind. Now, <laughs> we have to play both Surprise, points, surprise! Though. A little basket appears with a towel in it, and inside the towel, blue corn tortillas. So now Melissa can make her own little octopus taco. Yes, now I'm building a little taco. A Oaxaca native, Mendez Florian, comes from a heritage of Mexican restaurant tours and is well known for his restaurant, Pasillo de Humo, in Mexico City. At May 64, corn supports so many dishes, like the creamy steamed corn tamal with chunky charred tomatillo in a puddle of pecorino cheese sauce. Tortillas act as the base for artfully plated tacos or come on the side of stunning entrees, like my octopus. This new restaurant, chef says, was named for corn from Mexico so that people can learn the true flavor of maize. To do that, he must use heritage breeds. He must source directly from the farmers who still plant and harvest such varieties. He even works with the same farmers his parents worked with when they started a Mexican restaurant in Oaxaca when he was two years old. We bought a corn from a small village in Oaxaca. The name is San Martín Cricajete. And the variety we bought to most people in the world have never experienced the taste of the kind of tortillas Mendez Florian makes using heirloom corn. That's because of the rise of masaca, a mass-produced instant corn flour commonly sold worldwide, including in Mexico. Furthermore, commercial corn production in the U.S. is based mainly on the hybridization of two American land races, the Southern Dense and the Northern Flints. Those are the names of the corn. And over 90% of that corn is from genetically modified seed. 
not of the heritage variety. Mexicans eat a lot of corn, so much that they import some of this corn from America and elsewhere, as well as use the cheaper masaca to make some of their dishes. Um, the use of GMO corn maybe will make it cheaper and easy to access for, for a lot of people. But cheaper, yes, but not as natural, not safe. The chef says we have to find the right ways to give the farmers the best conditions to plant, so to have better production and maintain their native varieties. The solution is not GMOs, in his view. It is the corn that is their heritage, their culture, their way of life. And we have to take care of it. Scientific American ran an article back in 2013 titled The Truth About Genetically Modified Foods. In it, two biologists present the growing dichotomy within the GM foods argument. The plant molecular biologist Robert Goldberg whines about the bogus fears over the health risks of bioengineered foods, while cellular biologist David Williams calls the push for GM foods naive. When you edit a genome, that genome responds, he says and mutations, those that scientists are not planning for, might not be witnessed until generations later. Those unplanned mutations could lead to toxic food products slipping by the FDA and into the mouths of consumers. Williams explains that he is within the minority among biologists in calling out concerns over GM crops. The field of plant molecular biology gets a lot of funding from companies that sell GM seeds. Such companies want pioneers, not whistleblowers. Let's think about the two sides of the argument again. This time, man by Timothy A. Wise and Bill Nye, the science guy. But I actually went to high school with Bill Nye. We were friends in high school. <laughs> what a connection. <laughs> I know. And I've written him about this. <laughs> I even said, you know, we should stage a debate because he loves to do these big debates and he hasn't won. Bill Nye used to be against GM foods. Here he is in a 2005 episode of Eye of Nine. You're saying, look, we've been genetically modifying crops for years, and we're fine. What's the worst that can happen? All right, try this. Let's say we genetically modify this corn so that when insects eat it, they die. Okay, then the wind blows some of the pollen from that corn over here into these weeds. Well, they're really wildflowers, and they're butterflies that rely on these flowers, and they eat some of that pollen. And all the butterflies die. Okay, so there's a whole summer without very many butterflies. Now, these are the rare butterflies that fly at night. So the bats that would normally feed on those butterflies can't get enough to eat for a whole summer. So they don't have nearly as much success at making bat babies. So that next summer, there aren't nearly as many bats around to eat the mosquitoes. Ah, now these are the mosquitoes that carry a deadly disease. And they feed on your blood. And they give you that disease. And then we all die. See, that would be bad. Now, I admit I made this up, 
But are scenarios like this possible? Or is this just alarmist hype? Now, we've been farming for 15,000 years, carefully breeding species at the pace of the seasons. But now it's possible to introduce a new species into the Earth's ecosystem, never before seen, practically overnight. And what's the hurry? It's not a race. We're the human race. So let's farm responsibly. Let's require labels on our foods. And let's carefully test these foods case by case. That's the way I see it. In his book, Undeniable, in 2014, Nye included a whole chapter sharing his concerns about GMOs. A year after its publication, he flipped his stance. I went to Monsanto, Nye said, and I spent a lot of time with the scientists there and I have revised my outlook. And I'm very excited about telling the world. When you're in love, you want to tell the world. Okay, so who is Monsanto? Let's take a quick sidebar to establish a major player in this story. The Monsanto company was an American agrochemical and agricultural biotechnology corporation, founded in 1901. It has since been bought by Bayer and is often referred to as Monsanto Bayer. The company Monsanto has a bit of a monstrous product history. They produced Agent Orange, the herbicide the U.S. military used to clear leaves and vegetation for military operations, mainly during the Vietnam War. The Vietnamese citizens and veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange have suffered from various cancers, as well as birth defects in their offspring born after exposure. In a response to a class action lawsuit filed against them and six other chemical companies, the defendants denied that the herbicide was linked with the health issues of the veterans, but then settled the lawsuit before jury selection, paying out $180 million in 1984. 45% of which was ordered to be paid by Monsanto. In 2004, a former Monsanto spokesperson denied their connection again, saying, We are sympathetic with people who believe they have been injured and understand their concern to find the cause. But reliable scientific evidence indicates that Agent Orange is not the cause of serious long-term health effects. Two years later, Monsanto paid part of a $62 billion settlement to victims of Agent Orange in Korea. In 2012, another $93 million due to cleanup efforts and resulting illnesses in West Virginia, where Agent Orange was manufactured. But it's not just Agent Orange. Monsanto produced another widely used herbicide. One spray of Roundup Max Control 365 kills to the root and keeps weeds away for up to 12 months because patios should be for cooking out and kicking back. Draw the line with Roundup, trusted for over 40 years. When the German chemical and pharmaceutical company Bayer bought Monsanto in 2018 for $63 billion, they also set aside about $10 billion to settle an estimated 95,000 claims that glyphosate, the active ingredient in the weed killer Roundup, caused their cancer. The deal is one of the largest settlements ever in U.S. civil litigation. Want to hear Bayer's chief executive officer's public statement on the health risks of Roundup? Warning, it's gonna sound like I'm repeating myself. As a science-based company committed to improving people's health, We have great sympathy for anyone who suffers from disease, and we understand their search for answers. 
At the same time, the extensive body of science indicates that Roundup does not cause cancer and therefore is not responsible for the illnesses alleged in this litigation. Now, back to Bill Nye. He says it was a visit to Monsanto that changed his mind about the safety of GM crops. It was the science that convinced him. But still to be questioned, the supplier of that science, the agribusiness giant behind the seed, Monsanto, a player who has claimed that only their seed, only their farming methods can save the world. In his book, Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food, Timothy A. Wise shares his concerns about the business model of agribusiness players like Monsanto. What problem were they solving? I mean, there's what the companies would tell you they were trying to solve, and then there's what I think the actual motivation is. They'd tell you that they were trying to create a more efficient and productive set of seeds with their associated herbicides that would grow well with less uh, need for manual weeding and with less need for insecticides. Because in the case of BT corn, the one that is, is engineered with an insecticide to repel the corn borer, one of the major pests in the US, BT corn is a type of genetically modified organism, or rather, a GMO. And just to clarify, a GMO is a plant or animal that has been genetically modified through the addition of a small amount of genetic material from other organisms through molecular techniques. Most of the GMOs on the market today have added genetic traits to protect them from pests, to increase tolerance to pesticides, or to improve the plant's quality in some other way, maybe by upping the size of its fruit, or its yield overall. In the case of BT corn, the added genetic material comes from a naturally occurring soil bacterium that produces a protein that kills the larva of the pesky European corn borer. This protein is called the BT delta endotoxin. Growers use BT corn as an alternative to spraying insecticides to control this little bug. The GM crop then creates GM foods, in this case, GM corn which is used in many familiar foods, including the cheaper and non-heritage corn flour we talked about earlier, as well as high fructose corn syrup, which is used as a sweetener in many foods, such as soft drinks and baked goods. About a tenth of the world's cropland includes GM plants. Four countries, the US, Canada, Brazil, and Argentina, grow 90% of the planet's GM crops. Speaking of corn, the FDA estimates that about 92% of the corn planted in America comes from GM seed. Advocates of GM corn crops say that it has greatly increased the yields of farmers across the corn belt. Some studies claim by 8 to 20%. You know, they would have you believe that U.S. corn farmers were suffering and, and were incredibly unproductive. And no. Completely untrue. We were we had the highest yields in the world. We still do. Yields actually haven't gone up since they introduced it because of GM seeds. 
that's been actually well documented by the National Academy of Sciences. And people forget it's it's pretty recent, actually. These seeds have only been with us for about 20, 25 years, so a generation not longer. So before that, we were doing fine. And, you know, agriculture had its problems. But like you said, did this solve a problem that that agriculture had? Not really. It solved a profitability challenge that the companies had. The real reason, though, is to make money, to create new products you can sell that are patented and that are proprietary and that... um, And that once farmers are using them, it's very hard for them to stop. Yes, GM seeds are patented. I mean, it makes sense, right? Since they are created by scientists and sold as products. But what Wise is sharing here represents a manipulation of that patent to force farmers into submission. A 2009 documentary, David vs. Monsanto, tells the story of a Canadian farmer whose land was contaminated by proprietary GMO plants from Monsanto, and thus the farmer was sued by Monsanto for infringement. The Canadian Supreme Court rolled in favor of Monsanto. Another case was brought against Indiana farmer Vernon Bowman, who replanted the seeds that he harvested from his licensed Roundup-tolerant Monsanto plants, using them again. Yet Monsanto claimed that the right to use a patented item did not include reproducing it. It's like how you can read, sell, lend, or destroy a copyrighted book but you can't make copies of it. The court ruled again in favor of Monsanto. That means farmers have to buy GM seeds each year for each growing season. That's happen in other places because you can't have agronomists walk into these communities who are growing multiple crops on their, on their farms with their corn. And the only thing they know how to do is to say, get all those other crops out of the way, plant only corn, plant them this far apart, plant them in rows this close together, get machines that can harvest them, douse them with these chemicals, stop using your your native seeds. It's like, no. No, that's what farmers are saying. That's what some countries are saying in response to GMOs. We This fight over GM crops isn't only about safety. It is about who farms the land and how. When I buy from my local farmer's market, I see the farmer. I understand they are the ones who grew the carrots and the kale I plan to eat. My money goes to them for my sustenance. When I buy in a grocery store, the story isn't as simple. The amount of consumer spending going directly to the farmers growing their food has substantially declined over the last couple decades. In 1993, farmers got about a 30% share of what consumers paid. Wise reports that by 2016, that dropped to about 15%, with most of the proceeds from food production going to retailers like Walmart, food processors like Archer Daniels Midland, meat companies like Tyson, grain traders like Cargill, and seed companies like Monsanto. This is the big machine of agribusiness, pushing their wheels forward, fueled by their claims that they are the only ones capable of feeding the growing global population. That is the powerful myth of scarcity. Wise refers to Francis Moore American researcher and author of the book Diet for a Small Planet. 
who estimates that our current production is capable of feeding 10 billion. That the small farmers can do it. They can feed the hungry. Since industrialized GM corn of America, it's used to feed pigs, chickens, and cars with corn-based ethanol. Even the UN Food and Agriculture Organization calls for a return to small-scale producers, especially in developing countries. Rather than simply more production, the UN proposes we consider what would be better production and better food systems for the people and for our environment. The top agricultural priority coming out of their 2012 survey, as ranked by the 60-plus participating countries, was rural livelihoods and the role of smallholders. The concerns over the control of big agribusiness, and specifically by Monsanto, have fueled protests against GM foods in Mexico over the last two decades. Wise witnessed this fight firsthand. And here was this fight, very active fight, that I, that I walked into just as the the request for a lawsuit to stop, but injunction to stop the planting of GM corn had just won its injunction. And I walked in like, good luck with that. Like, <laughs> who do you think you are and what you're up against? And you think the corrupt legal system is gonna hold up to that? And here we are eight years later and it did. And yeah. the president is backing them. Hard to find happy success stories <laughs> yeah. in the world these days. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador backed the fight against GM corn and rocked the agribusiness world with his 2021 New Year's Eve decree to phase out the cultivation of genetically modified crops, specifically corn. Under previous presidents, Monsanto was offered land and rights to test GM corn varieties in Mexico. But last year, they were kicked out. A lot of credit goes to the legal fight that began in 2013 when a group called Demanda Colectiva in Defensa del Maíz Nativo, or the Collective Lawsuit in Defense of Native Corn, petitioned the Mexican government Look, to stop the cultivation a, of GM corn. A little corn. spunky law firm that had taken up the the fight, I call them David LLC, because they were like, who, how, how exactly do you think you're going to beat these guys in court? And actually the guy, the lawyer, one of my favorite quotes from that chapter is I really did say to him, they have, you know, you're talking about all the biggest seed companies in the world backed by the Mexican government at the time before this government, the government changed hands. How do you think you're going to win in court? And he said, the judge eats tacos. We all eat tacos. Like, he knows corn's different. Like, wow, okay. It was interesting. They had a choice to make about what they were going to um, argue in their, in asking for the injunction. And it was whether it was they were going to as for an injunction on the basis of, of human health risks and, or on the basis of environmental risks. And they chose environmental risks. And that turned out to be a very smart choice because it's undeniable that GM corn, the pollen blows and it contaminates native varieties of corn. 
it's undeniable that the native varieties of corn are endemic to Mexico and are a national and international resource that should be protected and that it's essential to and central to Mexican cuisine and culture. Very smart choice on their part. It put them in a very good position to win in court and to win that injunction as it turned out. That, that injunction had held up to, I, I think it must have been a hundred legal challenges. And so all that legal power of the companies including when they were backed by the government, even that wasn't enough. I mean, it turned out the Mexican constitution was up to the task and they had judges who were willing to respect the constitution and its recognition of the human right of Mexicans, their constitutional right to a clean environment. And they extended that constitute the understanding of the definition of that. The farmers, consumers, and environmental groups that make up the collective argued that genetically modified corn causes cross-pollination and endangers native corn varieties, which is a staple of the Mexican culture, cuisine, and environment. And they were granted a precautionary injunction in 2013 on all further GM corn planting permits, citing the risk of imminent harm to the environment. Likewise explained, maize pollen carries on the wind even as far as half a mile. So if a portion of land is granted to a big seed company to be planted with genetically modified seed, that crop's pollen could then spread to neighboring farms. 90% of Mexico's cropland is planted with native maize, making 90% of its land worthy of protection from cross-pollination with GM seed. The big chemical and seed companies who sought to overturn the injunction, including Bayer Monsanto, Syngenta, and Cortiva, criticized the band, saying that GMOs have not produced a single case of threat or risk to the environment. But this fight in Mexico is a fight to maintain a safe environment for its precious 64 native varieties of maize that have been cultivated on Mexican soil for centuries. It is a fight to maintain the heritage of corn in Mexico. It is a fight to maintain the milpa, the small field crop rotation of the three sister crops, beans, squash, corn that sustain the health of the land. And even the large corn farmers, the industrial-sized producers in Mexico, may not need GM seed, according to a recent study. BT maize has genetic material that fights against that pesky corn borer, remember? But Mexico doesn't have as much of an issue with the bug as farmers do in Iowa. And Monsanto's Roundup Ready corn seed which can tolerate higher doses of the herbicide, doesn't save much either, since the growing season for corn in Mexico doesn't yield as severe weed problems as elsewhere. So what could threaten the livelihood of Mexican farmers? It could be greater dependency on multinational agribusiness firms that demand higher input costs in seeding and more of a monopoly control over the market. But if Mexico isn't the place for GMCs, why then would large seed companies push for planting rights there? I mean, I asked in Mexico when I was doing my research, I said, what, why are they so... Mexico seems like the worst place in the world for them to try to force themselves in because of this corn culture that's so deeply rooted. Why are they so intent on it? And I, I forget who said it. Somebody said they want to make an example of Mexico. 
we can win anywhere. We can force you to submit anywhere, even in Mexico. And it turns out they were wrong. In their statement about the Supreme Court ruling, the winning collective was triumphant, but still serious, aware of the spidering effects of the agricultural choices beyond seed. This decision, they said, is crucial for the preservation of native maize and the milpa, but also for the beekeeping sector and for the bees themselves as part of their biodiversity, which have been severely affected by the entry of GMOs, such as soybeans and corn, as well as the use of pesticides, such as glyphosate. Interestingly, Timothy Wise also brought up honey in our talk about GM corn. Uh, Certified organic honey producers in the Yucatan having their product rejected because traces of GM traits showed up in the tests, in the lab tests, when they tried to export to Europe. Yeah, they literally lost their market because of honeybees were getting their pollen from GM soybeans, and nobody knew that that was transmitting into the honey Mm. that was being exported. And so that produced its own injunction separate from this one. I mean, that's held up to challenge as well. So they caught it from both uh, from both those two sides. But it didn't, the glyphosate was entirely a product of this decree that the president issued um, a little over a year ago. I mean, that's another uh, shot across the bow. There aren't a lot, I mean, there are a lot of countries that are restricting the use of glyphosate. Um, because of the findings that it's a probable human carcinogen um, from the World Health Organization. And, and the, but... In 2015, the Mexican Supreme Court blocked the big seed companies from planting more GM soybeans in several Mexican states with protests against the crop that threatened the purity of other agricultural products of the region. Beyond this ban, the 2021 presidential decree also pushed forth a plan to phase out glyphosate altogether, which is the active ingredient in herbicides, like Monsanto's Roundup. On both sides of the border, there are farmers and industry leaders who disagree with the bans. Christian Garcia de Paz of CropLife Mexico says he worries about the value chain in Mexican agribusiness and about food security, projecting that the price of tortillas may increase by 500% if Mexico moves forward with not only banning glyphosate, but GM corn imports as well. And that is a part of President Lopez Obrador's commitment to Mexico-first agricultural policies. NAFTA's push of ultra-cheap U.S. corn into Mexico has driven down prices for Mexican farmers. The proposed import restrictions would then allow the profits to improve the lives of those local farmers. Garcia de Paz of CropLife Mexico is concerned, but what is CropLife Mexico? Well, CropLife is funded by Bayer and other agrochemical companies. The Guardian ran a story about a year ago about how CropLife America, as an agricultural industry lobbyist, worked closely with Monsanto Bayer and U.S. officials to pressure Mexico into dropping the ban. The same time Monsanto was paying out $10 billion in settlements over glyphosate's claimed carcinogen properties, It was emailing U.S. government officials for aid in protecting their right to export the herbicide to Mexico, whom they claimed 
had no scientific evidence that the product causes environmental or human harm. Mexico claimed they did have scientific evidence and planned to run further studies. In fact, there are fears among America's herbicide exporters that Mexico would extend their use of the precautionary principle to pesticide residue levels in food. I mean, you can't, it's astonishing that Mexico being the home of the Green Revolution. So Mexico is where Norman Borlaug, the U.S. crop breeder, went to develop the wheat varieties that became the heart of India's Green Revolution. So Mexico has, has a very large industrialized agriculture sector, but even with that, it's astonishing that that 70% of the farmers who grow corn in Mexico still use native seeds. Norman Borlaug was a pioneer of breeding plants for better seed, working to induce mutations in plants that benefited impoverished farmers who struggled with diseased and low-producing crops. Wheat production in Mexico multiplied threefold owing to his new variety of dwarf wheat that could withstand large budding heads. His work in India and Pakistan aided both countries in becoming agriculturally self-sufficient, saving as many as one billion people from starvation and death. Still, the increase in agricultural means meant an increase in the use of herbicides and pesticides within these environments, something Borlaug deemed necessary to farm in a way needed in response to uncontrolled population growth. Yet still, there are states in India pushing to do without to go completely green and organic without the use of chemical aids. Is all natural possible? Wise told me a story of a winner of the World Food Prize, which interestingly was created by Norman Borlaug in 1986 to honor individuals who have contributed to improving the availability and quality of food worldwide. So, I mean, I, I think I tell a story in the book about Hans Herren, who's a, an entomologist who won the World Food Prize for identifying the, the source of, the, of a, a mealybug infestation of the cassava crop in, in, that was spreading across big parts of Africa where cassava, we know as yucca, is a staple crop for a lot of those folks. It's a great story. It's this huge detective story. He's traveling all over. Africa and Latin America trying to find where this mealybug originated and how it could have gotten to Africa. And then he also discovers that in, it's controlled in its origin, place of origin in Paraguay by uh, a wasp. After testing, dis decide that introducing that wasp into Africa would not produce deleterious effects and they control the spread they basically eradicate the mealybug from being a, such a destructive pest. With aerial spraying of wasps over large tracts of, of African forests and fields, and he gets the World Food Prize for the biological control of, of this pest infestation. But what is the, what is the biotech industry now shopping it's a brown streak virus in the cassava that, that they have a, a genetic, genetically modified version that's gonna save, save Africa. And you know, I asked him, I said, 
is this any different? He goes, no, then nature is out of balance because of monocultures and you've got to find a way to bring nature back into balance. And one, one gene and one genetic variety. Monoculture. It's why most Americans have only ever tasted one type of banana. I mean, have you ever wondered about that? You could probably name at least 10, 15 apple varieties, but yet you know only one banana, the Cavadesh banana, which is the most popular variety in America because of the monoculture of banana production throughout the markets that ship bananas to the States. But there are other bananas. There are these ones called ladies' finger bananas that are smaller and sweeter than the long, mild Cavadesh. And blue Java bananas? They're nicknamed ice cream bananas for their unusual blue color and vanilla-like flavor. But I digress. What I am saying here is that if you look past the loss of money to Bayer Monsanto and other agribusiness players in the GM corn and herbicide game, you can see possibilities the possibility to try 64 different varieties of corn, the possibilities to invest in small-scale farmers to return to a more natural, self-sufficient system. I'm thinking again of that tamal from maize 64, wondering if I could find the maize necessary to make something like it, thinking about the possibility of native corn varieties from Mexico coming into our world rather than the U.S. pushing GM corn on Mexico. Wondering about my place in all of this. I think is can be really valuable is to make that demand on the Biden administration that they respect Mexico. And one of the false arguments that the companies are making is Mexico can't feed it, won't be able to feed itself if it doesn't get our our GM corn, because we provide a third of their corn. And what farmers in the US have said is we can grow non-GM corn. If they still need to buy corn from us, we are not closing off our markets. We need to give customers what they want. Isn't that what we always say we're about? Right. If they want non-GM corn, we can grow non-GM corn. We did it very productively before GM came along just 25 years ago. Then what they what they're doing is they're making Mexico's action, the presidential decree restricting GM corn imports, if it if it does get extended to that, and glyphosate imports, um, they're making it seem like it's a discriminatory action against the U.S. And it's a discriminatory action against GM crops from anywhere, not against the U.S. So the U.S. has not... Mexicans have been fighting for their rights for a clean environment, so that those who have not chosen GM seeds will not end up with GM seeds, floating onto their land by way of wind and big agribusiness. What they want is less glyphosate, cleaner food, more authentic food, and more sovereignty over their own land and how it is used. Proponents of GM crops say that they have lowered the price of food, that some GM seeds have allowed farmers to use less pesticides, that they have raised the output of corn, cotton, and soy by something like 20%. That, like the motto of the agribusiness global company, they empower agriculture to feed the world. However, the cautionary principle asks us to question the flaws in all of that. 
and the funds from that claimed increase going to big agribusiness instead of to the farmers in the package deal of Roundup Ready GM seeds with the use of Roundup, in the potential health risks of glyphosate, in the loss of non-GM native seed varieties, in the impact on the health of the environment, and possibly the health of consumers. So what do we think? What is the truth about genetically modified foods? The truth is complex. Maybe we need a greater return to small-scale farming. Maybe we need to question big business and their motives. Maybe we can learn from the states in India attempting an all-organic way of life. Maybe we can find natural ways to better our yields, effective ways of sharing our wealth, and careful ways to prevent harm to the earth and its people. They get to choose and we should let them choose. So I think a, a key question, I mean, to form that as a question is, will the Biden administration respect Mexico's uh, right to determine the kind of food it wants to eat and the kind of environment it wants to have? Next, Abby takes us to the citrus farms in Florida to find out more about what's plaguing our oranges there. I'm here, sitting in my living room, peeling a mandarin orange I bought from Trader Joe's. According to the packaging, the oranges are from Monrovia, California. Downtown LA, expect a high of 65, and the valleys will reach 69 in some areas. Though I read online that all mandarin oranges are originally from China and India. I'm picturing the ancestry of this small, loose-skinned, sweet fruit as I remove the peel. The United States received mandarin orange seeds from China sometime between 1840 and 1850. And over the years, the plants were spread from New Orleans to California and Florida. My oranges farm must have either grafted this new mandarin orange branch onto a different citrus tree, or they planted these new unfamiliar seeds that would eventually grow and produce this new type of citrus. And now a century or so later, the little oranges are picked and cleaned, taken to a factory that covers them in a and I quote, food grade vegetable and or shellac based wax or resin to maintain freshness and then stuffed into a refrigerated shipping container where they're eventually delivered to the Trader Joe's on 14th Street in Washington, D.C. This process is how a lot of our food is produced and sent around the globe in an import and export arrangement, one piece of what we know as globalization. It's so normal to pick up a bag of oranges in a place that wouldn't otherwise naturally grow oranges. We barely even consider how crazy it is that in places like DC, holding an orange in our hand is actually so unnatural. I wanted to know more about humans' influence on citrus. And so I asked a friend who used to work at a citrus farm in Florida. 
to tell me about his experience. Because I, I, I can I can go on a tangent and I just don't <laughs> want to go on a tangent. Like I yeah. want to be concise with the information. Um, that is, that's very um. sweet of you. <laughs> um. This is Tung Kim. In his last semester at Florida International University, he took a job at Southwest Florida Research and Education Center. Heretofore called the center because what a name. The center has research programs in a few different things, all focused around agriculture, agricultural engineering, and agricultural economics. Tung worked with the citrus. I worked in the physiology lab, um, so it was mainly about the the physical, you know, part of the of the citrus. We did do. He had a background in research, but not in citrus specifically. So he got a crash course in all things citrus, and he learned that citrus was a lot bigger and way more complicated than he expected. Citrus is, is one of, it's actually the biggest agricultural um, export for Florida. It's one of the main financial product, essentially our, our biggest export for Florida. It's before the, this whole uh, bacteria really took over, Florida was supplying, I believe, almost 30% of, of worldwide uh, orange juices and oranges in general. Um, we had the best oranges, um, I think California. For the past 15 or so years, Florida citrus farmers have been dealing with a bacteria called Shuanglongbing, which means yellow shoot in Chinese, and is mostly referred to by its acronym, HLB. In America, you've most likely heard of it as citrus greening, so that's how I'll refer to it here. Since citrus greening arrived in the U.S., it has made Florida's citrus production decline by 80% as of a report done in November 2021. And each farmer is going through different stages of infection. Right. So if it's like a, a new grove, uh, a new grove meaning the trees are three to four years or so three to five years, um, they're pretty young, they're just... They just matured and they're they're producing fruit. And when you go into those uh, plots of land, it's almost as if you're just going through a normal orchard, or you know, and and um, and it's just the, there's lots of leaves. The leaves are big. They're 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 nice and shiny. Um, if it's like flowering season, it smells beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks healthy, but once you go to a plot of land that's that has about ten plus years and and are sort of at the, the peak of the, um, the infestation, there's some real stark differences. One of the main- Picture, if you can, an orchard or citrus grove. In a good year, you'd see parallel lines of healthy, full foliage, fruitful trees, about 40 in each row. With citrus greening, only 10 to 20 of those same trees will resemble a healthy growth. Tung said you can visibly tell when a tree is infected. There are less leaves on the branches, and the leaves that are left are blotchy, yellow, and veiny. The fruit is discolored and lopsided, and it drops too early. Many citrus groves are pocked with holes in the ground, where trees have been taken out. There are stumps everywhere, and skeletons of trees line the field. It's basically guaranteed that a tree's lifespan is only about 8 to 10 years now, compared to before the bacteria was introduced, when orange trees could actively produce fruit for up to 50 years. So how did citrus greening get to the U.S. in the first place? The origin of the bacteria is still slightly unknown, 
though there are some pretty strong hypotheses. Um, we believe that the, the, the bacteria first became prevalent in China. Um, back then we had very laxed regulation in terms of like, you know, bringing fruits. Um, if you've been in, in any type of farm from a different country coming into the States nowadays, you have to make sure that you, you tell them that, that you've been at a farm. They, they'll ask mm -hmm. you actually on a form saying, have you been in an agricultural farm in a different country? And if so, you have to um, specify that and you have to clean your shoes, etc. Back then we didn't have those laws. Mm -hmm. So we believe that someone who's been to a farm um, in a citrus grove that has been heavily infected either brought back some form of fruits, um, flies from the fruits, or something on their shoes back to the States, back to Florida, and we believe that's how they spread. Someone brought the bacteria from China, likely through a small bug known as a psyllid. The psyllids were most likely either hanging out on the oranges in the shipping crates or on the humans themselves. Psyllids are small, pesky gray bugs, only about three to four millimeters long, and they're the prime suspect for carrying citrus greening from one plant to the next. A report done by the center explains the transmission process. The insect has piercing, sucking mouth parts that allow it to acquire and transmit the bacteria to and from the plant phloem, part of the tree's vascular system. Isn't it weird how the littlest bugs have the scariest descriptors? Piercing, sucking mouth parts? Imagine if that bug was five feet tall. It would be terrifying. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. No, thank you. So anyway, Tongue explained an infected orange like this. The bacteria essentially eats all the sugar in the fruit, mm. so it doesn't have enough to produce the sugar. So you actually have mature sized fruits and mature fruits that are still green and there won't be any sugar in it. Wow. Um, and then when you cut it open, it's almost like a foam. Um, it was, it would be really dense. Yeah. So, uh, when you, when you squeeze it, the fibers just come out. Um, Whoa, there's no juice. Or there's anything. no juice. It's super dried out. Um, and one of the worst conditions, was it, still, was it orange on the inside? No, or? it's, it's like green, like very grayish. Um, it's just like fibers of, of the fruit. It's like a yeah. Um, one of the, the worst indicator is when the fruit would literally rot on the branch mm. and you would just have this like black yeah. orange because it was just starting to decay and, and, and the, plant, uh, the plant essentially can't like release the fruit on its own. I'll note here that the bacteria does not affect humans, so no worries there. Some worries though about everything else in this scenario. But this specific type of psyllid, the Asian citrus psyllid, is not native to the United States. Without humans transferring it from one country to the next, we wouldn't have this problem. As we've all been forced to learn in the past couple of years, the world is so interconnected, for good and for bad. It's way too easy for humans to bring disease, bugs, bacteria, and other visible and invisible pests with them as they travel. Even easier for the disease, bugs, and bacteria to spread when put in an environment that allows for easy contact. We've seen this phenomenon over and over, affecting both humans and animals.
Take COVID-19, for instance, a disease that without globalization would have been limited to one small part of the globe instead of the entire world. As for the effect humans have over animals, we should note here that humans are the cause of the mass extinction of many different species. Take, for instance, the BD fungus used in human-led experiments on toads, then eventually spread around the world by those same toads that ended up wiping out many species of frogs. This is all explored in Elizabeth Colbert's book, The Sixth Extinction. And these are only a few moments of many where our footprint has caused disaster in the world around us. So a lot of Tung's research revolved around citrus greening. A typical day for Tung might have involved a lot of lab work, physically grinding leaf and root samples for PCR tests to understand just how many citrus trees were infected. He came to the center in the thick of the disease, so what he experienced seemed normal. It's all he knew. But other, more experienced farmers would have had to learn some new protocols. At the center, the employees rotate which days they work in citrus and which days they work in the greenhouses, dubbed cleanhouses, to make sure they're not accidentally bringing any bacteria carrying psyllids from one side to the other. Even if they haven't been in the citrus grove, they still have to undergo a cleaning process to enter the greenhouses. And there, um, what we did was we put um, a sprayer um, for your shoes. Uh, we also had a couple brushes um, and hand sanitizer. Now, you couldn't go in there if you've been out in the field. Okay, then that was the rule because maybe an aphids could be on your shirt, on your, on your hair, something, right? And when Tung says aphid, he means psyllid. The bugs are related, but not the same. And if you've been out in the field, you're not allowed to go in. So someone else has to go in. Mm-hmm. And, and usually we go into these clean houses early in the morning. So when I come into work at 8 a.m., the first thing we'll do is we'll go in there, check out the plants, how they're doing, if there's any measurement, anything we need to do, watering, feeding, whatever we do it, um, like the, the first hour of the day. Come back into the office. If we need to go out in the field, we make sure we get all the all the things we need to do in the greenhouses first, and then um, we go out in the field. Um, and if if we need to do something else in, in the greenhouse after the field, we have to make sure that we get someone in a different lab who hasn't been out in the field um, uh, uh, to, to check out on our stuff. Um, so we also made sure all the, the team are split in a way where if there's an emergency, um, there's always a, a clean group of people that can go into the greenhouses. Mm. Um, so, so we scheduled a lot of... A lot Finding of- a way to eradicate citrus greening is difficult. Even though farmers cut down the infected trees, they only own so much land, so they replant next to the leftover stumps. And often the bacterium is still living in the roots of those leftover stumps. But really, it comes down to the psyllids. The center tested different pesticides, but psyllids are small and resilient. Each generation of psyllids would evolve to live despite the pesticides. Scientists worked instead to find some sort of chemical or nutrient to put in the citrus trees to make them the resilient ones. And that seemed to work for a while. But ultimately, it was only a band-aid on a gunshot wound. Farmers can't really chop down all the trees and start again, either. Because citrus trees don't start producing fruit for three to five years after they're initially planted. So, farmers are looking for other ways out. Tung said they're considering whole different crops, plums or peaches, for instance, 
since there isn't evidence that citrus greening would extend to these types of fruits. One natural solution the center considered briefly was simply diversifying their crops. But in an era of mass farming, this is proving to be more and more difficult. When the center is dedicated to citrus and vegetable crops, diversifying means hiring more people, investigating in different processes, and possibly dealing with new, devastating pests. In hindsight, it's obvious that acres and acres of oranges or corn or wheat would attract pests that eat that very thing. We're basically sending them an open invitation to a feast. Welcome to the neighborhood. But now everyday citizens rely on these huge single crop farms to produce their groceries for the week. Changing everything up, as helpful as that might be in the long run, would disrupt a supply chain with which we're extremely comfortable. So right now, though your orange juice might be under the Florida's natural label, the oranges in that juice are probably from Brazil, where the trees are not infected by citrus greening at this point in time. Knock on wood. Even if there were some magical solution to eradicate the bacteria, that's not a promise that our citrus is safe forever. Yes, we can try to mitigate and like, let's say, and I don't think this 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 problem is gonna go away anytime because of globalization, right? Um, maybe maybe you know what the the new crop or whatever new thing that they grow will survive and and thrive. But I think down the road, something's gonna change. Um, and and a new bacteria or maybe a new virus will come and wreak havoc to the growth again. Um, Humans continue to infect themselves, plants, and animals, sometimes without even knowing it. Our quest for ease and comfort propels us to buy orange juice even though we might live in Minnesota, thousands of miles from where an orange would naturally grow. But people lived in Minnesota for thousands of years without even knowing what an orange was before globalization. And, and I don't think it's, you know, it's ever going to go away. I think, I think there are a lot of benefits to it, right? Um, By it, Tongue is referring to globalization here. But just like how there are, are benefits to it, I, I think it, it, it would be important and it would be good for us to have a clear, thorough understanding or at the very least, like really think about, you know, what the possibilities could be before we, we just jump into um, an action and, and start doing things, right? Um, obviously, with our ever-changing world, we don't have the luxury of time to be waiting and say, let's let's do some testing, let's do some of this before we make it into a, a big scale. Sometimes it just sort of happens. We can't really stop it. If it's not going to be us, it's going to be someone else, right? Us in the sense that Americans... It's not exactly helpful to say that globalization is only good or bad. The truth is, it's both. Without globalization, we wouldn't be able to read about what's going on in other places, wouldn't be able to travel, wouldn't be able to trade food and goods. But also, without globalization, citrus greening wouldn't have infected orange trees in America. Diseases wouldn't be spread across the earth. Unnatural predators wouldn't be brought from one country to the next, rendering some species extinct. What Tung saw at the center was a microscopic example of the world at large, a reflection of our impact and the lack of control we have over that impact. 
We've set up our own interconnected web. And now we're here, stuck in it. I don't know. Is there, could we get to a point that it's a lot better? Yes. I just don't think it's going to be perfect, like this utopian place where everybody's yeah. like, kumbaya, you know, we're going to all good. I think we're just selfish people in general. I, I mean, we're, myself yeah, included. We're past that. Yeah. So um, I, I, I think um, there, there are ways to, to combat it, but, I, but it will take a lot of money yeah. to do so. And I am kind of just pessimistic enough to say that I don't think we'll get there. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end. researching corn and hearing about oranges and all of the background information on all of these things, how do you feel going to the grocery store and getting oranges or corn products for your meal plan? I feel a little gypped. Like I feel <laughs> like I've walked by the stacks and stacks of tortillas and it's just like... <laughs> And then I also question all the other fruit. I think that oranges aren't an outlier. I don't think that corn is an outlier. All the processed food that we eat, like if we just pick up a muffin uh, at Starbucks, which is a processed muffin, Starbucks does not make their own muffins, that probably has GMO corn or GMO wheat in it. it it's like, I have so many questions that I either have to quiet in my brain and ignore, or I have to turn away from a lot of food. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of become one or the other. I sent my husband to get groceries the other day and he came back with corn tortillas. And I just couldn't help but like remember our experience at May 64 and how just like pure those tortillas were. And then just seeing this bag of <laughs> corn tortillas. I remember I like looked at the bag at the ingredients and it just went on and on and on. You know, when you talk to the chef, when you talk to people at the restaurant, you just realize how simple a corn tortilla should be. I think I put a lot of pride in the fact that I grew up on a self-sustained farm, but I think I don't act on that pride. I don't make all my own things. Like sometimes I talk about all the things my aunt did and I talk about her as if she was insane. Like how could she make her own cheese? Like that took up her whole life. Like she made her own bread and her own cheese and her own spaghetti sauce and and yet I was like well but they just come in containers at the supermarket why why not just buy them was there a part of you when you left um your aunts and like lived on your own was there a part of you that felt some sort of like relief going to the grocery store and buying your own cheese I think so I think there was a part that felt at, in awe of the options and in awe of all the things I had to try because it's not like she could make everything. 
I think that is the beauty of globalization as well. It allows you to try so many different foods and we definitely hold food as pleasure and sustenance. Now I have kind of more of an understanding of why that is. I've, I've read all the books and, and you know, they still horrify me when I'm standing in the ketchup aisle and realize that like what the heck is in ketchup anyway? So like those <laughs> questions. So now I feel like I'm the normal consumer and I'm at odds with myself that I want to eat better. I want to help support better agricultural systems. But I also like just buying cottage cheese in the tub and eating it. <laughs> I think this just always goes back to like the industry, the industry like kind of being at fault, like these people on top who don't really care about us and what we're consuming. They care about the money and stuff, you know? And so that's kind of just what we're left with. We're like in this system that makes it extremely hard to live in a way that aligns with our values after learning all of these different things. I don't think that's an excuse to not try to do better, but I do think it's something <laughs> worth acknowledging. Yeah. I think, okay, so I was watching that new, well, I don't even know if it's new, that Netflix series, Sweet Tooth, and I was sitting there thinking, why are we so obsessed with these dystopias? And in this one, a virus is developed because we have over industrialized nature so nature responds with this virus that kills off over half of the population and it is beautiful the scenery that they've done the work that they've done to create these like sets that are our normal industrialized worlds but overtaken by nature and i realized that's one of my favorite parts about dystopia is getting that visual I mean, I do like the idea of kind of seeing how people would survive, but I think people like the idea of one big thing taking away everything that they know is hurting the planet, but they can't seem to get rid of on their own. Like one big thing happens and the internet is gone and cars are gone and all these terrible things are just gone. And then you have to survive on your own. But it's like, do we really want that to happen? <laughs> like, Probably not. That's such a good point, right? Yeah, it's like we kind of dream about the day where things are just flat, flatlined, right? Like you just have to like pick up and start over. That's interesting. Like it, it feels kind of just like we're, again, kind of like how I ended my part, like caught in this own web that we've made ourselves. And at some point you just want somebody to like cut the strings so you just fall out and you're not in the web anymore. <laughs> what does that life look like? Like, what can we create? It's like acknowledging your privilege. Like, you don't know what to do with it. You know you have it. And you have the privilege of going to the grocery store and having all these options and being able to buy them. Um, you might have the privilege of going to the farmer's market or to Whole Foods where there might be better options. But you don't know what to do with that privilege. Like, you don't know how to upend it so that everyone has that same privilege and that there aren't some who are suffering at the other end of the industrial model that brought you your orange. Yeah, exactly. We're just indicted. We're indicted. <laughs> now that you know things, you're indicted. <laughs> yeah, 
I think I've been really uneducated about GMOs. Just I know that it was preferred to not have them. The GMO thing, I think I'll probably look for it now. I've never really, I don't know, I'm the worst. I've just never really thought to like be invested in that. I think for me, when it comes to choosing foods to buy it it more comes down to what the actual ingredients are rather than if it's been uh, bioengineered or not so I think I'm just also not sure like what that means like some things can be genetically modified and that doesn't mean like weird things were added or like you know it's just that they're trying to make it like a thicker fruit or like you know like have more flavor or something like that so I am an uninformed consumer and probably would just buy things. Thanks for listening. And we owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. Chef Alain mendez Florian for being an awesome chef, making us some amazing food and sharing his views on corn from Mexico. Thank you to all the cooks at May 64 and the bartenders for some interesting cocktails we didn't talk enough about. You all should really check it out. May 64 near Logan Circle in Washington, D.C. Thank you to Timothy A. Wise for his knowledge and expertise and for talking to me about corn and Bill Nye and all things industrialized food. Wise's book, Eating Tomorrow, came out in 2019 and is available wherever you buy books. There is so much more in there to learn about our food systems. Thank you to Tong Kim for sharing his experience at Southwest Florida Research and Education Center, and a thank you to the source material we use for research and background for this episode. Articles from Scientific American, Politico, the FDA, The Guardian, The Post, Southwest Florida Research, and Education Research Materials, research from the University of Florida and Czech Academy of Agricultural Sciences. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Melissa Wade, and by Abby Newhouse. All sound effects and music not recorded by us came from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, thewe'reherepodcast.com, no apostrophe, and our Instagram at we'rehere.podcast. Again, drop the apostrophe. Until next week, we're here.